It's time for another Squiggly Animation podcast. Joining us this episode are the massive talents of Green Street Pictures, creators of the brand new Max series, Scavenger's Reign. Well, hello, folks. We're back for autumn 2023 it is another squiggly animation podcast with me ben mitchell and steve henderson hello steve hello ben yeah autumn already blimey it's uh it's pretty terrifying isn't it i saw the leaves falling on the ground and thought oh my god it's time to record another squiggly podcast are you feeling suitably <laughs> autumnally i am i'm feeling pumpkin spiced ben i really am yeah <laughs> We're uh, in the thick of math, as, as you might imagine. So uh, we, we're mere weeks away from the festival happening. And so, um, yeah, I'm running on fumes, as you might imagine as well. So, um, yeah, festival fun times in full force and ready and rearing for some autumn squiggly fun times as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Harness those fumes, Steve. <laughs> Harness them. Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, I am snorting away. Nice fumey podcast performance. <laughs> Good stuff. Yes, math very nearly upon us. Looking forward to it. It has announced its program fairly recently. Any uh, highlights that are on your uh, agenda as far as steering people toward? Oh, wow, blimey! Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a big year for us. We're very happy. We got um, we got some Disney. We got some Netflix. We got some Hardman. We got some Passion Pictures. Uh, we got uh, the Boy and the Heron, which was a lovely thing to happen. That was. Uh, it wasn't the easiest thing to get hold of, but it, we're pretty glad we got it. Uh, you know, so really looking forward to that. And those are flying out the door, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, lots of uh, lots of Ghibli fans um, eager to to snap up those tickets. So that was it. That was exciting. I'm looking forward to Chicken Run. I think twenty um, odd years later, mm-hmm. uh, we've got we've got the sequel to Chicken Run. Uh, everyone imagines, you know, that. Being a, a, a you know festival director, that I should be saying, oh yes, I'm looking forward to the latest uh, Eastern European chin scratchy nonsense, um, and I am. I'm also looking forward to chickens being silly for an hour and a half. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, running about, as the title might dictate. <laughs> no, no reason not to. The uh, original Chicken Run was a charming endeavour, uh, beloved by many. Mm. I enjoyed the the trailer for the new one. It will say the new voice does sound older than Sawala. Just putting that out there. Yeah, there is a there is an ongoing debate about the the vocal performance of the new film. You know, um, what could you say? Julia Sawala is not really the cachet that she used to be when Ab Fab was in its in its prime. Is that the, is that that's the reason, isn't it? It's not like well, she's no Chris Pratt. <laughs> well, indeed. And I'm, I'm sure that was the entire reason all those bums were on seats uh, when that film came out. Well, and uh, Zachary Levi instead of uh, Mel Gibson. I mean, there's a reason there. Let's be honest. Let's That's, that one's a little more understandable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of chickens running around. I could do the fucking voice. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, do us the chicken voice. Uh, get, feed me a line. Um... I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. That's a very compelling argument. I'm a chicken. <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. You you could be you, you the 
The audition's yours. There's no point in auditioning anyone else. It brings to mind uh, a little while ago, I saw a trailer for a new episodes of Rick and Morty. And uh, I think we, we discussed this in the last episode of this podcast, you know, that that was a recast role that was not met with much um, pushback. Like everyone was just sort of okay with that. Watching the trailer and hearing the new voice and, and something really occurred to me about the sort of nature of, of, you know, casting and recasting and whatnot is like, I, I don't care about this show anymore anyway. <laughs> there is, there is a, 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 an element of that. I, when it first came out, when Rick and Morty first came out, I absolutely loved it. I was head over heels. I thought it was absolutely amazing. And then there came a point where, uh, the fans became a little bit, We've, we may have well have discussed this. The fans became a little bit um, theatrical, shall we say. Um, and uh, and I remember looking at it thinking, oh, it's time to dial back on the, <laughs> on, on, on the enjoyment. You know, these guys are really kind of ruining it. This is, this is not the club that I want to be in. Um, and, and I still kind of watched it and there was some, there was some clever bits and pieces in it. I'm a fan of Dan Harmon's stuff. I thought that, you know, community is brilliant and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I, I was, I was like, oh, I've not watched Rick and Morty in years. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've watched it since, uh, since the, 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 the baby was born. So I just, I just put it on, um, I must have watched it because it was the it was the last series, and I thought I'll 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 put I'll I'll start from the end, and I was like I've not seen this one. Oh, I'll go back another one. Hang on, I've I've not seen this one either. Hang on, where and and it turned out I hadn't watched half of the season, so I'd just given up, and I was like oh oh I must have just <laughs> and like not only did I give up, it wasn't even a thing in my mind. It was like. I don't anything it anymore, and I, I thought that was a bit of a shame. But, you know what? What happened to my brain that 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 like? That why why did the importance of this show that I once loved evaporate? I, I don't know what happened. What what? Why why brain do that, Ben? Well, we we move on in life. It's a sad thing, as you say. And I noticed it started to happen to me in my sort of late twenties. I would just like I'd start a show and really really like it, and then you know, a season would end and then I would forget about it for years. Mm. And then like one day someone would be like, Oh yeah. What do you think of the walking dead season seven? I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like, that show could not have been on that many seasons. Come on. <laughs> uh, and yeah. apparently it was and people were watching it. How fascinating. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, I hope they enjoyed it. Because shows, shows demand a lot from you. Don't they? The, the, nowadays they demand so much from you. They're like, Right, listen, half of this season is going to be terrible, but it pays off in the end. I've not got hours and hours of time to sit there and wait for this thing to be good. Just deliver good now. Stop stop fucking about. I've not got all day. You know, I actually think it was easier to invest in shows when we were younger, before like DVDs and streaming and binging was really a concept, because they were so stingy with home media releases back in the 80s and 90s, you know, The Simpsons would release, like, you know, six episodes of the show on video cassette <laughs> a year, in a good year. You know, all the shows I watched as a kid, you know, in the 90s, X-Files. I, I didn't see 70% of the X-Files until I was, like, in college. 
And I was like, oh, this show is mostly crap. <laughs> like, they just put out the ones that were, you know, had got the best ratings on video, and they, it convinced you it was a good show. And that, that's sort of the case. Like, you would be a fan of a show and have seen maybe a third of the episodes. And, you know, doubly the case for any cartoons I grew up on in the 80s, where, you know, you, you, you would try and revisit them in adulthood, you know, for the nostalgia or whatever, quarter-life crisis. And uh, you watch the introduction sequence and the music, and it gives you that nostalgia endorphin release. And, oh, yeah, this is taking me right back. And if you can make it through an episode of them, you realize, oh, yeah, I didn't actually, I wasn't a fan of all 800 episodes of this show. I was a fan of the six episodes I taped off the TV in 1987, <laughs> and which I watched over and over again. So, yeah, I do think that, you know, there's a, a, a relationship we're having with streaming content where, like, you know, to be a fan of a show, we you have to have watched all seasons, all episodes of every season. You know, I can think of very, very few shows that have retained that sort of level of interest and where even when they go through bad patches, I will keep watching and wait for the good patches to come along again. Like there's always sunny. And that, I, I don't know if I can think of a second at this point. And it's, it's, yeah, it's not easy. I think it's not easy to make shows. It's not easy. I think to watch them and love every episode. And that's also with Rick and Morty though, like don't they make like 10 episodes every seven years? <laughs> so they don't have as much of an excuse. <laughs> I think that's why I, I did kind of stick it out as long as I did with them. Yeah. But they have released a new trailer. We, we didn't talk about it in the last one. It's, it's It was released a couple of, uh, a week or two ago, maybe. Uh, so we finally hear how Rick and Morty sound not done by Justin Roiland. And they sound like Rick and Morty sound. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's the headline. There's the... <laughs> There's the headline that we didn't need to write on Squiggly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure they'll get into all sorts of intergalactic scrapes and shenanigans. Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We got, uh, I think we mentioned some Simpsons there. We got Rick and Morty done. What's next, Ben? I was speaking with a uh, colleague today, and uh, they were very excited to be attending math this year. And they, uh, yes, very keen to see Boy and the Heron and uh, also the Peasants. Uh, most excited of all, of course, about these squiggly events <laughs> that uh, will be returning, expectedly, and uh, they're sure to be a blast. I'm looking forward to those as well. I I mean, I apologize, but the squiggly quiz does clash with the boy and the heron. And I'm not apologizing to you, Ben. I'm apologizing to Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, yes. because that means, obviously, that no one will be going to see the boy and the heron. Because they'll all be at the squiggly quiz. It's understandable, but these are the decisions, you know, these hard industry decisions that have to be uh, made and taken, you know, and uh, I am sure he will get over it. He'll have to. If he knows what's good for him. <laughs> yeah, but I'm really excited to get the uh, the squiggly quiz uh, underway. We just have to write it now. You know, we need to get some awesome prizes and uh, make sure that I know how the actual quiz works this year. <laughs> We used the uh, we used a, a version where you have to use your phones. We stepped into the year two thousand and ten. Everyone had to bring their telephones and use their their phones to do the quiz. And I absolutely goofed it off, and uh, we were about forty minutes late. Uh, so come along if you want some more uh, tech shenanigans and awesome prizes. 
There you go. Tell you what, come along after the boy and the heron is finished, <laughs> and we'll be, you know, about twenty minutes away from starting. <laughs> I'll still be like white faced in like a cold sweat, going, "What's happening? Why? Why has this happened?" <laughs> What's the look for? I think that I don't feel it was that bad last year. Like people were were rolling with it. They were all good sports. You yeah. have to be. You certainly do. Um, but yeah, we got the squiggly quiz. We've got squiggly screening. Loads of uh, loads of awesome stuff coming up squiggly wise. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm very delighted to hear that uh, people down in Bristol are, are looking forward to coming up to Manchester. That's uh, that's great news. Well, she did have a film in the festival. Oh. Fair enough. I think she's probably excited about that too. Even better. <laughs> I mainly think it's the squiggly thing, personally. But there you go. Yeah. And well, of course, of course. Other uh, other events going on uh, this time o' year mm-hmm. are uh, stalwart marketing director Aaron. Uh, I believe has been at Annie Marked of late. Hmm. We should say congratulations, Aaron and Sylvie, for the, your uh, new arrival. Yes. Amazon delivery? Amazon delivery, yeah. They delivered a uh, £9 baby boy. So, yeah. Congratulations, guys. Congratulations. It's interesting taking a baby to an animation event, especially if you have to take the baby to the animation event rather than keep them in the hotel, because they make for excellent networking tools. If you've got mm-hmm. a little baby on you, <laughs> you're going to meet some You're gonna meet some, <laughs> some producers that just want to pinch cheeks, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a good way around it, but yeah, congratulations, Aaron. Congratulations, Sylvie, and um, have fun at Annie Market. I hope they've got a crash. A few friends of mine have been over there too, um, actually, sort of on the kind of creative end of it. Some of them fared rather well. Nice to see our old pal Joseph Wallace got a bit of a, a, a special mention, and his new project looks quite interesting. We have an interview with Joseph coming up quite soon, I would say, before the month is through. And he alluded to uh, the project he was bringing to Animarkt with him. Yeah, Joseph won the Annecy Award over there at Animarkt Industry Accreditation for me for 2024. Well, that'll save him some pennies. Meh. He was hoping the Vanderberg sisters, uh, we see more of that uh, in the months and years to come. If we know one thing about Joseph is that he's uh, he perseveres. It's like his last film, uh, Salvation Has No Name, gestated for many, many moons. And, uh, you know, it's uh, had a very good fate, I think, on the sort of festival circuit and on the online release. I think that story had a happy ending. Hopefully this one will too. Fingers crossed. It's nice to see friends do well. It's worth a wait as well, I think it's safe to say. Um, it's always when when things have taken their time and they percolate beautifully and they come out as as lovely as salvation has no name um i mean i'm not saying he could have done it in six weeks um, so, <laughs> and it would have been the same film but i'm saying uh, it is a beautiful piece of work yeah and unfortunately uh the sort of story where if he'd have started it 10 years ago it's still re- relevant today um there's still those crises going on around the world and uh yeah when he when he picked the topic, I don't think he was thinking, oh, well, this could be over in three weeks. Well, we go into that in the interview. It's, it's uh, yeah, he didn't really anticipate it being quite so evergreen. It's kind of a similar thing also with the, the recent Signal Bauman interview that went up. Like there were these very kind of deep-rooted sort of social issues that were 
nearly kind of seen the end of, or so we thought. And now the kind of issues in that film, My Love Affair with Marriage, they're kind of more relevant than ever. Like The mm. world is really kind of in this sort of weird flux, sort of reverting back to, you know, kind of scary time, to be honest. Especially, you know, if we uh, think of the comments of, you know, certain prime ministers, the support that that kind of thing garners and the stuff that goes on in the States and uh, just very, 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 very chilling little um, uh, steps backwards. We're all just kind of like, you know, failing a little bit. But from times of crisis can come works of very compelling and interesting art. So that is something But you know, ideally... We wouldn't live in a shit heap universe and uh, we'd still get good films, but you can't have it all. <laughs> well, let's hope minds can be changed with this, these works of art because uh, they certainly need to be. And as you say, our uh, leaders are not uh, in the mood for changing minds because a changed mind won't vote for them. Another animation event that I got serious FOMO about and recently Laura was on a jury in Viborg. Yes. Uh, and they're a festival I've wanted to go to for a while. I met that team at Annecy quite a long time ago, and they uh, furnished me with those plushies that we used in that recreation photo for the math quiz. Remember when we were doing the yeah. live action remakes? And um, it was for uh, I Lost My Body with the Rats, and they used their little green dachshunds in place of the rats. What really, really looked awesome, and I'm really sad to have missed it, was the uh, Nikki Lindroth von Bar exhibition. All of those amazing puppets from films like The Burden. Yeah, I was very envious. Oh, well. I mean, Laura Beth, animation, Dashons, she must have been absolutely, like, the only thing missing was you, Ben. I got the impression it was a good time. They all got on very well. Uh, and I think... Uh, nice. Uh, that's, you know, a blessed thing when you're on a jury. Because sometimes, you know, I've, I've mostly been on good juries who, you know, they get on board with the notion that, uh, yeah, let's just do what Ben says because we don't want to upset him. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't won all the jury battles that I, I would have liked to have won. There was a f short film jury I was on, and I was so annoyed that the one that won won. <laughs> oh, gosh, like, yeah. And it was a compromise thing, and compromise is just so unsatisfying. You know, because I, it, I'd almost rather one of the really divisive films win than one of the just okay films. And the one that won, it won a bunch of awards anyway. And like the filmmaker wasn't even there to get the award. And his acceptance speech was a bit like phoned in and like, yeah, I've, you know, he's already won a bunch of awards. <clears throat> what do I care? So that was just, yeah, I should, I should have, I should have really just bullied them more, you know, but I was, you know, being too damn decent and letting diplomacy, uh, and, uh, democracy rule. Yeah. Oh my to God. my uh, to my downfall. Uh, what are you going to do? I'm often stopped when I'm on juries when they have to kind of read the rules out to me when I'm mid rant about something. Like Steve, that's not part of the criteria. You need to you need to sit down, sit down, Steve. Put the gun down, Steve. <laughs> Get off the table. Stop dancing and kicking kicking people's coffees into their faces. You need to you need to remember <laughs> that this is best children's film. But yeah, any other animation events been on the on around it was uh, BAM recently, Bristol Animation Meetup that looked amazing. It, uh, yeah, a little closer to home. Uh, our one year BAM anniversary. Eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean they've each one of these. This would have been the fourth one we've done, and I think each one of them has sort of grown a bit and evolved a bit. 
all around the same kind of central premise of getting together and having a bit of a piss up. But, you know, the, with the last one, we really found a venue that the whole community seemed really on board with. And that was a big sort of step forward because there were a lot of like agonizing sort of chats about, like, oh, we could go there, we could go there, we could do this, and all well, the pints are too expensive there, or, you know, we could get knifed if we go there. Um, no one can park their bike if we go there because their bike would get freaking stolen. Uh, anyway, we found a nice neutral place in a, a fairly uh, friendly area of Bristol. People seem to dig it. I think the big development with this one was uh, incorporating, I think, a more dedicated networking element at the start. And that was something we wanted to trial. So as people who aren't familiar with BAM might not know, this is something that I started up with uh, pals at Rumpus Animation and Sun and Moon Animation, two Bristol studios run by uh, good friends of ours, very fond of the work they do. And yeah, they were all quite keen to kind of get something going. I think sort of post-COVID, nothing had really emerged that was properly plugged into the industry as far as kind of a social event or a meetup event. And I had gotten really bad at getting back in touch with a lot of people I wanted to see. So I'm like, fuck, I'll just throw a party and invite everyone that I want to see, and I'll call it an industry event. <laughs> and uh, it worked beautifully. I had a, a you know, great evening catching up with people. And yeah, that's been that's been really nice. You know, people come over from Birmingham and Wales as well. And, you know, some people came from like uh, up north. Some guy came from Kent to talk to one of the industry people. A couple of people from York, like a ways to go. I was quite surprised. There was something, I think, encouraging about that because we're also not entirely sure how to get the word out on these things. You know, there's Instagram. No one wants to go on Twitter, really. And there's <laughs> what, Facebook, LinkedIn. Does anyone even use these websites? So, you know, and I was sort of talking with, like, what would be the sort of options? And I was like, I don't know, Discord? Like, no. <laughs> TikTok? Threads? Fuck you. <laughs> Threads. Threads, indeed. Uh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, I said Twitter before. What I meant was <sighs> X. <sighs> but what was really encouraging was like we would announce industry people. And so for this first one, it was me and uh, Louis and Steph from Rumpus being the sort of organizers we wanted to kind of muck in, of course. Uh, and then uh, friends of ours from A Productions and Ardman. And uh, big, big demand. Everyone's like slots booked up like really, really quickly. It, I think, extinguished the sort of doubt that, you know, there's an appetite for this kind of thing. And I was trying to work out why, because, you know, there had been events in Bristol, you know, when I first moved here that just seemed like they would never go away. And one by one, they all just kind of went away. And sometimes it was that the organizers moved or the people who ran them, you know, they, they kind of lost interest in animation. But they were great. Uh, when, when we, when, when I used to come down and record the podcast in 2012 or whatever, we'd go to show me the animation. We'd go to, you know, other meetups and stuff, wouldn't we? Afterwards, we, you know, that's where I met the majority of the people at, I still bump into at places like, you know, CMC or Annecy or whatever, you know, it's, it, it all starts at the, these, these fantastic events. Uh, what were the other ones that we went to the, show me the animation and. Well, for a while that we had Festivus in Bristol, he called it West of us. Hmm. Uh, and then he moved, I think back <laughs> to London, Rob. So I was, I was thinking about the sort of death of animation activity, given that it is such an animation hub. 
a recurring thing that did come up quite a bit was people having, you know, remembering that, you know, Rumpus used to do a similar kind of thing to Bam on their own and sometimes with Squiggly, but like basically a sort of like party uh, on the same street. And that was always a good piss up. And it was usually during Encounters Week. And that led to a few people kind of like putting, you know, a couple of things together. It's like, oh, the Encounters Festival. Is that on this week? Is that happening at all? And then finding to their like amazement that, yes, it was. In the last few years, I think Encounters has kind of, well, it has absolutely sort of rebranded itself, and it is not the entity that it used to be. Now, people who've been following Squiggly for a while or are just, you know, sort of local to Bristol will probably be aware that Squiggly and Encounters had for quite a few years a pretty clement relationship with Encounters. We were quite involved. I did quite a lot of the filmmaker Q&As. Uh, I've been involved as a filmmaker, like they screened about half of my films, which is very nice of them. So I've been on that side of the looking glass too. I I think the first kind of screening program I ever actually sort of curated myself was an Encounters fringe screening. Yeah, it's been a very harmonious relationship. So the first Squiggly specials were Encounters. Yeah, that's true. We talked to, um, I think that was when we had Paul Bush on. Uh, may he rest in peace with the sad developments since the last episode. I'll tell you something else as well. It's where we met. You and me. Or maybe it was just the watershed. I don't know. Maybe it was, actually. I, I, were you there just for the festival or specifically to do squiggly stuff? or Squiggly stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, think it was, I think it was like a Richard Williams thing going on or something like that, maybe. I was down for that. Or time before, something like that. I can't remember. It was a long, long time ago, Ben. Years and years ago. Yeah. But yeah, so Encounters... Threaded throughout our lives, encounters. A lot of memories. Well, it's had it's had different incarnations over the years, and I think that you know the that sort of era when we would have met that would have been at the Arnolfini, I think, because mm. they did split it up between the Watershed and the Arnolfini, and for a time, it was actually two separate festivals, and they had animation as its own festival at a different time of the year. I'm not sure for how long they did that, but I think that they were kind of trialing that at a certain point for a little while. And then they would sort of do mixed screenings and then they would do, you know, uh, one festival, but, you know, international live action competitions and international animation competitions. And they would be separate strands. You had the two different programmers, Kieran and um, uh, someone else was doing the live action. That all seemed to work pretty well for me. I just don't know what their circumstances are. The impression you get is that they are given less and less to work with. But I'll tell you this much, what they do have to work with, they are not, I think, honoring the role animation has to play in this city. Mm. And Steve, you are going to sleep tonight because I have stats. Stats. I had look at his face light up. (laughs) Okay. As in numbers. Numbers, Steve. Percentages. Ratios. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So uh, chatting a bit with someone about like, you know, what uh, their impression of of the festival was and how they had felt like they had been to a couple of the screenings. I did go to a couple of things at Encounters this year, uh, but I'll I'll circle back to that just because it's kind of in service to the overall point about where the change of attitude, I think, has come from. So it is a, a new programming team. I think this year marks the first year that my relationship with them is is basically over as a non-filmmaker, you know, hopefully they will screen more of my films in the future. But uh, yeah, the last thing I did for Encounters was last year, and it was a few write-ups for some of the films. 
and I had done that the year before. They were doing that this year, like uh, having film critics write up the uh, films in the official program, but they didn't get in touch this year. So I guess that's kind of us done, uh, is my, my read of that. I'm, you know, surprised if a festival wants to do something with the same people more than once in a row, you know, so it's, it's, it's a rare thing to have had such a long working relationship with encounters. So strap in for some stats. Uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to reel off a few uh, ratios of live action to animation per screening. Okay. And then I'll, I'll, I'll skip to the, the, the dessert portion. Uh, so you have your Southwest categories, films produced more regionally, right? Uh, three programs. First program, three live action films, no animation films. Uh, program two, five live action films, two animation films. Program three, four live action, one animation. Okay, well, regionally, you know, you would think there would be quite a bit, but uh, 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 let's move on to the international competition. Competition one, four live action, one animation. Uh, and competition two, three live action, two animation. A little closer to being balanced there. Competition three, five live action, no animation. Uh, there's eight programs, so I'm just going to skip two. And there's a UK section as well. If we tally up all of the in-competition film category screenings, uh, we get 60 live-action films, 16 animation films. That's 21%. You know, that that sucks as a, as a... That's not remotely representative of what the local filmmaking landscape is, and that's really disappointing and, and confusing, and I don't really know what to make of that. Now... To their credit, I know I'll give it a more sort of rounded thing. There are other categories and screenings that would favor animation a bit more. So there's Depict, which is the 90 seconds or less film competition. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same programming team behind it. Historically, it used to be kind of a separate thing. So maybe that's the reason why. 11 live action mini shorts uh, to nine animation mini shorts. Uh, so that, you know, that brings it up. A little bit. You have things like uh, late lounge categories. There's a screening called short shivers, more like the other ones. Four live action to one animation, and late lounge seemed like the funnest program. Three live action to five animation. Late lounge was always a pretty dependable screening for um, a good mix of films, and probably the most interesting ones because they tend to be the you know that that category in a film festival where they do a late night mm. screening and show the weird ones. Uh, so they're usually pretty good fun. And some of the, f the films that were in this one, I was pretty familiar with. It was a good bunch, you know, so credit where credit's due. Animation completely dominated one screening, zero live action to six animation. Can you guess which screening that was? Was it for the young'uns? Children's Jury. How did you guess? Oh, dear. <laughs> and there were five animations across two uh, screenings. Anime Showcase, which, you know, would make sense. You know, it would, I would be a little bit more miffed if the live action outweighed the animation in the anime showcase. I'm not quite sure what to make of the anime showcase as a, and its role within Encounters. I think that's a pretty new development. And it sort of feels like you could do an anime showcase at any time of the year. I know one of them was like films from like 1995. So that felt more like just sort of a supplemental thing. So if we tally it up, you know, when you include Depict... We bring up the percentage a little bit to a whopping 26% animation 
71 live action to 25 animation. You know, the ones that do make it in are generally pretty good. Like, they're films that I think we'd both agree, uh, you know, more often than not, films that are pretty, you know, watchable and at the you know, on the leaderboard of, of the better films of the year. Well, it's a surprising scene. I, Ice Merchants in the kids' screening. You know, I mean, that's great. That's I, I, I completely get treating the kids' audience as a mature and able to handle something like Ice Merchants. But that would have fit beautifully in any part of the, the festival, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not going to trash um, somebody's somebody's programming, but maybe to say that the the lack of animation is is very concerning. It it doesn't reflect Bristol, the town that I know, and I'm not from Bristol. But if it, and every time I've come down, I've hung around with somebody like you, Ben, or I've I've been to encounters and bumped into all my animation chums and all that sort of stuff. It, it's I know animation. I know Bristol as as an animation town. Yeah. It, it it's the capital of animation in the south of England. I don't I don't really think of London that much as I mean there's loads of animation in London, but Bristol, if I'm thinking of creativity, I'm thinking of this creative hub of there's this, you know, coupled with Cardiff, there's this there's this wonderful energy and, and what's what's happened there? Why has why has animation become a an afterthought almost? An interesting little uh, statistical outcome. Uh, if we tally all of the above, and this includes the, you know, slightly disjointed anime component as well as the children's jury being very, you know, basically entirely animation. At that point, you now have a, a full program where the animation component is exactly a third. Uh, it's 33.3333. And I wonder, like, if it's given how exact that is, if maybe there was some kind of, no stipulation that you know animation can make up a third of this mm. festival i don't know what kind of you know people would be weighing in on that or it could just be a complete coincidence yeah but like I said, it's not about trashing so much as asking the question why you know when there is so much at your disposal it's it, and you're programming a festival it really to me seems like a gift horse being looked in the mouth a bit to me what it communicates when you know the animation is given its day in court just in the children's jury and in the anime showcases is that animation has a place in this industry and it's for children or it's anime. And then for the rest of it, yeah, maybe 20%. And that's this kind of general public consensus that we're constantly trying to fight against, you know, and I remember being grateful, you know, a year ago when Guillermo del Toro was saying, you know, oh no, you know, animation is not a genre. Animation is, you know, a, a, a medium. It's a filmmaking tool. And then I remember being kind of like, almost like, because he would keep saying it over and over and over again yeah, yeah. in every interview. I made a little comment in one of the podcasts afterwards of like, okay, maybe maybe you've made your point. I completely rescind that. Yeah. No, he didn't make his fucking point because this is still how animation is viewed. And if you go on the Encounters website and look at the film genres, that's where you find animation. That's how I was able to put these lists together so quickly is because they list animation as a fucking genre. <sighs> This is in the Encounters Film Festival. That is ridiculous. Like you run a film festival and you don't know what film words mean. That is sending a chilling message of how passed over and how glibly thought of uh, this medium is in filmmaking. I'm. I'm. You know what I mean? I, I'm. I'm completely. I'm astounded. I mean, uh, first of all. 
absolutely in love with Professor Ben and all his statistics. I love this. This is amazing. <laughs> After all these years, I've become the podcast co-host of your dreams, Stephen. <laughs> but as well, I mean, I mean, even that kind of the, using the word genre is is a is a damning, really. Now, I know that Encounters have been under a lot of the structure of Encounters have been rather turbulent at the moment. They've just hired a new director. So perhaps this is something of a a work in progress, shall we say. Something that is in, under development, something which will find its feet for 2024 and something where uh, they will don't don't call animation a genre, you know, envelop it within the festival and embrace it and you your audiences will be rewarded whenever we used to do screenings of whenever we do math presents which is our yearly screening or whenever we used to do uh this is not a cartoon for squiggly i'd always start the screening by asking the audience who's here because you work in the animation industry and if we had an audience of 60 under 10 will put their hand up and i'd say who's here because they want to see something i've never seen before and the rest of them would put the hand up, or at least it felt like the rest of them put the hand up. And who's here because they thought they were coming to see Barbie? You know, the, the, but you know, the the idea is of 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 if you put animation on for your audience, you will reward your audience, and you will be rewarded with them saying, "I saw a film. I wow! It can it it absolutely uh, defies expectations, and they will they will be so enriched." by programming animation and I'm, you know, make it 50, 50 next year, really program these films and share these films because these filmmakers deserve it as much as anyone else. You know, that's such a shame, but as well, something happened to me earlier on today. I was at a, um, I was at like a trade event. It was, it was this kind of weird trade event thing that I went to. And, um, I was showing all these stats about exports, UK exports and, you know, the percentage of exports and there was a a big percentage of video games, a big percentage of culture, a big percentage of motion pictures and all these kind of blobs around. None of them, no, not once was animation mentioned. However, animation fit into every single one of them. Animation was a joining factor in all of these kind of industry sectors, which are worth billions. And yet animation is always the second you know it's this incredible like glue that keeps it all together and and kind of binds culture and it's such a such an amazing thing and then later on through the speech somebody mentioned and this is my now this is a a, this is going to sound like i hope i can change people's minds here with this because this this really really pisses me off and i don't know why why it pisses me off so much but this is a little bit of a hill i've decided to die on now, when people refer to things as Mickey Mouse, uh-huh. and they referred yeah. to, uh, it was somebody talking about sports, and they said, oh, everybody gets the little Mickey Mouse trophies, and they're all happy. And it's like, why are you using Mickey Mouse? Why do we allow ourselves to use Mickey Mouse as a derogatory thing? He's worth, he's a mascot of, he's internationally recognized. He's worth billions He's the face of one of the longest-running entertainment industries in the world. That's probably why they use Mickey Mouse. However, why in such a derogatory manner? Because, and all it does is belittle animation in the public sphere. And that's all it does, is it it takes animation down a notch to, it's just Mickey Mouse. It's just a 
don't worry about it. No, it, it it's it's an international concern. It's 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 huge, and yet again, it's it's called a genre. It's called Mickey Mouse thing. You know, how many times have your animation degree could been called Mickey Mouse studies? Technically, it is yeah, but it's belittled. <laughs> yeah. It's it's taken down. Whereas Nesta, um, if you want to go and look up what Nesta is, they put animation as the number one job skill of the future. Yeah. It's such a big deal. And yet it's it's treated with such and I think the reason why is because people are scared of it. People don't understand it. But if you you don't have to spend long, you just watch one program of animated films and you get it. Yeah. You don't have to spend years watching, going back through the archives and understanding and having long conversations and 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 doing all this like just watch it, you'll get it. And then just do what you want with it. Discover more things. Enjoy more things. Just just really get stuck in if you want to get stuck in. Because believe you me, it will reward you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Stop calling things Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it speaks to a, a legitimate gripe in that a lot of people just get angry at animation as well. Like they, they just, they hate it. Like they really just like it. They, they find it too synonymous with childhood frivolity. You know, and so I get annoyed if a show like Love, Death, and Robots comes along and they reduce adult animation to, like, you know, this shambles of swearing and women with their breasts out for no discernible reason. And yet that will kind of bring animation into the conversation a bit and, in a weird way, kind of get it taken a bit more seriously and get a bit more funding in potentially for other adult animation that might be, you know, a little bit more cerebral. Or even, the, you know, the later episodes of Love, Death and Robots, they were a bit better, you know, than the first season. But it is interesting, like, how animation only matters if it's packaged in a particularly digestible way. And, you know, the same people who would belittle something that looks like a cartoon or a Pixar movie or a Disney movie or whatever will more than happily go to something where it's 99%, you know, animated visual effects and CG models. It's packaged in a way that makes it, you know, okay to like, I'm not being a, a big childish dork if I'm watching this version of the exact same fucking skill set being yeah. demonstrated through cinema or through television or whatever. And that is sort of frustrating because it's it's a, a unnecessary cause. It's an unnecessary thing to remove from your life as a matter of principle. You know, and I get, you know, if you're a parent and your kid wants to watch the same episode of Paw Patrol again and 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 again, they put out the fucking fire and again and again and again and again. Okay, I get that. But if it's this, oh no, it's this, you know, it's it's Bob's Burgers. Ugh, how dare they be on my television? This cartoon family. You watch the, you watch that shit. What's wrong with you? Watch a, a grown-up show like The Only Way Is Essex. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't, th I don't think that there is an inherent snobbery or, or hatred for animation in the Encounters camp. I no, think no. that they wouldn't have that anime component. If there was an issue with animation, the issue is to me, like, well, where is any of it? Like, you know, why is there so little of it? In my subjective opinion, I think the program would be enriched with a much more sort of balanced live action animation split. I, f and that was basically all of the feedback I got about encounters at BAM. 
Like a lot of people brought it up and, you know, it may be interested enough to actually dive into the program and, and look into it. A couple more stats for you, Steve. Ooh. So, you know, it's not just film screenings. The uh, special events peppered the program. Uh, I went to a couple. One very nice event with uh, friends, O Squiggly, Matt and Jane, who we had on this time last year, who did Lord of the Flies. They have made a spin-off. Jane directed, Matt wrote, for YouTube called Arachnofly. And... That is really funny. Like, it's actually, it was interesting. There's a lot of kids in the, the presentation who were maybe a bit young because the, the jokes didn't quite land as well with the kids as they did with the grown-ups. I feel like maybe it's more for, like, kids around, like, 10 and up. Mm. And a lot of the kids there were sort of around, like, six-ish, I would guess. But it's, it's legitimately funny, and it started on YouTube now. Uh, so you should check it out on the Ardman, uh Sean and Friends YouTube channel. Uh, Arachnofly is uh, good fun. A lot of fun, like meta jokes in there. I think what's especially gratifying, because like I said, when we had both of them on, you know, I've known Matt and Jane for so long. There's just stuff in there that's just like very much Matt. Things that are just like, you could just sort of see him, picture him writing it. Kind of like also with David when he was doing um, Boy and Dragon, which I think he's actually still doing now. They, they started doing more of those. Oh, and there would be your stuff in those episodes that just kind of reminded me of the stuff he was doing, you know, in uni. It's a really nice thing to kind of see your friends in that kind of stuff. Like sort of see them kind of make, you know, their mark in it. So I got a good chuckle out of that. Again, that was the only, I think, dedicated animation event regarding production. And it was, you know, for a kid's thing. Again, sort of tying in with the whole, like, you know, children's jury being the sort of where most of the animation kind of clumped together. There was a, an Admin Academy event, and there was a BFI animation hybrid event that uh, included two locally made films. But across all the special events, you know, there were about 19, and three of them were animation-oriented. So again, there's another kind of indication of where that's at like you know there's so much you could do with animation in this town yeah are you kidding me the people you could get in or the people you could get in from out of town there's a ton of stuff i think festival like encounters would be able to get so easily but yeah overall it, it, it averaged out at yeah four to one uh, across all of the competition screenings and yeah maybe next year let's go for three to two I mean, Encounters haven't been in touch with me asking for notes. <laughs> like I say, I've been involved with Encounters in, in decreasing capacities in the last few years, but you know, there was a time where I was pretty enmeshed with it and I was part of the actual animation programming. Mm. So, you know, I 100% understand if someone listens to this kind of rant and just thinks, oh, well, he's just having a pop because he's not involved anymore. Think that if you like, but those are the statistics. And statistics don't lie. That's why they're so damn great. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> you can't escape the numbers. <sighs> well, that's a shame. Uh, but I'm sure the people who went there looking for live-action films were... Uh, there's a live-action film podcast somewhere now, Ben, and they're going, there was too much animation. Like, look, at, I've got the numbers, and like nearly a third of it was animation. That's absolutely disgusting. What about our live action filmmakers? <laughs> what about our people with iPhones now? Everybody's got an iPhone. We're all filming films. Oh, well. Let's see what 2024 brings. So, yeah, like I said, a lot of that sort of was brought up at BAM. And I think that what it kind of 
addressed to me was that there is something, a, a gap has been kind of created that wasn't there before. Mm. And I think that's sort of come with, you know, this festival essentially kind of reconfiguring what exactly it is. I'm sure there's a reason as to why they're doing it in terms of it's probably making sense for them on a certain level, uh, whether that be financial or whatever, um, whether it kind of guarantees more support in the future. Uh, you know, it's it's all a whole separate thing from uh, anything to do with me now. Uh, I wish them well in general, but it made me really happy that we were doing stuff like BAM because, you know, that really felt like the animators... Uh, that I knew the people that I'd love sort of working with and a whole bunch of, you know, new people who have come into Bristol and people who just decided to come over for the night, you know, it really, really felt like uh, a lot of camaraderie was flying around the place. Great. And the people, a lot of great feedback about the one-to-one sessions. So we'll do that more. And I definitely want to do more with BAM moving forward. You know, I'm now that I got the, the meetup and, get drunk and catch it with my friends post COVID phase out of the way where we're getting a lot of encouraging responses and feedback. Uh, and so it would be a waste to not do something with that. So watch this space, more, more bamming to come. Nice one. I would imagine at least one before the year is through as well. That'll probably be another kind of one-to-one session component with that one too. So keep your eyes on the squiggly socials. They filled up really quickly this time around. They probably will again. So just keep your eyes out and uh, get in touch as soon as you hear about stuff. Because uh, these people are in demand. They're good people. They're wise. Nice. Well, well, to get myself down for one. That would be wonderful. I have people coming from York. People come from York and around the country and driving past Manchester to get there. I can't sit up here, just watch them go past Ben. Get myself back down to Bristol for some animation goodness. Hitch a ride. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I can't really speak in, but on behalf of, like, uh, it's really difficult to get big institutions, not the BFI, the BFI are very good, but to get other large-scale national institutions to understand animation. That's been something of our mission. Oh. Um, so maybe that's got a factor in what's going on, but who knows. Sorry, what else has been going on, Ben? Well, speaking of large-scale institutions, or institutions in general, what I did on my summer vacation, which was a very brief vacation, it was only a couple of weeks, but I managed to reconnect with what was going on in some of the corners of the Montreal animation scene. Mm. Not that many. Like, there were a lot of... Because I hadn't been back to the old stomping grounds for about five years, like pre-COVID. And there were a lot of people I would have loved to have seen that there just wasn't enough time. And it was, you know, there were other priorities, I think, as far as like stuff to do, uh, a lot of family stuff to take care of. But I did get some time catching up with some folks and uh, some organizations. We did swing by the National Film Board of Canada while we were there. They are up to some fun stuff. If you sort of scroll through our Instagram, you'll see a couple of uh, uh, images from productions they have going on and is this your first time in their new offices uh yeah the new ones uh i hadn't been able to get to they opened i think after 2018 which was the last time i was in the city the old ones you know they had their their charm a lot of ghosts of filmmakers past but uh it was like right on the edge of nowhere it was not easy to get to this one is right in the center of town it's right by the plastizar it's you couldn't imagine a more ideal location. It was kind of a snoozy day, but uh, we were able to kind of see, you know, some things that were kind of being worked on. 
Did you see at Annecy the presentation on Le Jeune Fille qui pleurait des perles? No, I did not. I would remember a name like that. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's by the chaps who did Madame Tootly Pootly. Ah, okay. Which is a smashing film. Chris Lavis and Maycheck Shabowski, who we have, we've had Chris on, definitely, uh, when I saw him in Annecy. I think the first time I went to Annecy. Uh, they've been up to a whole bunch of stuff, like really kind of interesting, some live action, uh, some stop motion, generally kind of puppet oriented. This one, it, it looks really, yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, I won't give away too much, but it, it, you know how like Madame Tootly Pootly used the sort of hybrid approach with the eyes, like the live action eyes on the faces? I don't want to give too much away, and I, I probably am not meant to, uh, so I will be vague. But basically, this kind of takes that to a, an extra step. It kind of takes live action elements, but also some CG elements uh, and mixes it up with stop motion. Again, to get this really unusual type of performance out of the puppets. And I don't know if, if it's become a sort of like well-known thing or because it wasn't hugely imitated. Other filmmakers, you know, did kind of use the live action eyes on stop motion puppets uh, a few times after, but I would imagine that it's still quite an affecting thing to see. Madame Tootly Pootly, especially if you're not quite sure how it was made. Mm. So I remember Barry Purvis showed it to us the first time he came to our uni and he showed it to us with a bunch of other stop motion films. And we were just watching it going, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, how is, how is this coming out of this puppet's face? What's happening? And yeah, and then he's like, oh, it's just eyes. It's just real eyes on. And like, wow, it, that does so much work it, in as far as changing the nature of the performance. It, it was quite astonishing. It's, it's, we have a little random, like lenticular bookmark on our fridge that like emerged during the house move the other month that yeah, we just popped on the fridge and I'll pass that by. And it's just that shot of like Madame Tootley Pootley kind of peering over her newspaper, like through her eyes. And, you know, I'll occasionally sort of catch that. And it's like, it's looking at me. It's, it's really creepy. I guess it's a lenticular. So as you pass it by, it kind of blinks as well. Nice. <laughs> It's yeah, it's still a very striking image. So I'm I'm really keen to see you know this film kind of uh, come together. Uh, the subject matter is pretty heavy. It's about some very not good people, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So yeah, uh, le jeune fille qui pleurait de perles. I might be how you pronounce it. Something to look out for. Also, a new Toro Co film which looked a lot of fun. As uh, a new pin screen film that Michelle Lemieux was doing. Alex Boyer who has been doing some really interesting stuff with like AI and animation. He had, you know, worked with hot house, I think kind of came into the NFB through that a few years ago. And he's doing a really fun film about bread, which I'm looking forward to that again, I think is going to be a bit mixed media. There's a, a quite uh, uh, amusing picture of him in that uh, Instagram cluster. If you scroll back and find our NFB pictures from a couple of months ago. So yeah, nice to see that they're, you know, they're still cracking on. I hear it. bread will walk by Alex Boyer. In a world confronted by climate change and food shortages, a mysterious agrochemical corporation produces engineered synthetic bread, which accidentally turns the hungry into slow, non-violent, zombie-like creatures made of loaves of freshly baked bread. So, there you go. Little tease for you. What more could you ask for? Another Claude Cloutier film as well coming out, which looks just incredible. So yeah, that put a bit of pep in my step <laughs> while I was over there. Fantastic. Oh, right before we left for Canada, actually, 
we went out to see the new Ninja Turtles film when that was still in the cinema. Yeah. What'd you think? Did you ever catch that one? Yeah. I, I have to say, I've, I've not watched a Ninja Turtles film in a very long time. I haven't been to one in the cinema since like 1991. Yeah. And I, I kind of went in going like, oh, maybe this will be fun. And a sort of, you know, Mitchell's and the Machines kind of, I'll enjoy the visuals. Uh, no, that was like a legit good film. I was pretty jazzed by it. Yeah. The the element of it I kind of enjoy is like I remember enough about the original premise that there's a lot of humor in kind of subverting a lot of the stuff that was just kind of a constant in Ninja Turtles. I liked the, the characterization of Splinter as being kind of a problematic helicopter parent yeah. dickhead. <laughs> like he's just kind of annoying. <laughs> the whole thing with like, you know, don't get caught by the government, they'll milk you. <sighs> and then the payoff of that was yeah. great. Uh, and but again, the way it looked um, was really satisfying. I thought the big bad at the end, perfect. Like that was such a. I, I would actually watch it again uh, when it comes out. And the way that it didn't have to rely on 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 this kind of like, oh, we have to use uh, Shredder, we have to use Kang, we have to weave in this kind of alien stuff. It's like, well, no, what it, what's it about? Like it's about teenagers, and they made it about teenagers. What's it about? It's about found family it's about all that sort of stuff it it was just it was it was just gold uh, you know i i thought it was great it didn't give me uh the nostalgic thrill that i would have expected but it gave me something that that i i didn't i didn't really sign up for I think that's that's a good thing in a way. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you don't you don't have to. Go, what's the point in watching a film knowing how you'll feel at the end? Mm. Just don't watch the film. You already know how you're going to feel. So, yeah. you know. But, but I, I was like, that was just that was lovely. Yeah, I had issues with it. It wasn't perfect, but I think what what they did in terms of like capturing that kind of the raw energy of of being a, an angsty teen, you know. Uh, and and you know it's very easy to compare it to Mitchell's versus the machine because that has that kind of you know Katie Mitchell scribbling through a journal but this has taken that to an extreme in that kind of really excitable scribbles and stuff it's yeah what a film what a film it was kind of a redemption arc for Seth Rogen in a way as well because <laughs> he had yeah. two pretty big strikes against him between sausage party and um that Santa Inc. show. Oh, yes. Which uh, I'm not actually sure if he had any kind of creative role in that, but he was definitely in it. But those those were two stinkers. And so there was a kind of like, okay, this might be the, the trifecta. This might round out that, you know, uh, trilogy of crapness. But no, that, yeah, that was good fun. I uh, I came away from it, similar to you, like a lot happier, like with it as a, as a cinema experience than I, I remotely expected going in. It's a nice thing that doesn't happen too much across any films, I see. And they were actual teenagers. Actual teenagers as well, which we've never seen. They're always like 30-year-olds that say cowabunga. That's what they are. You know, they're never like, they're never actual teenagers. Yeah. And I thought it was just, yeah, really nice. Yeah, otherwise, you know, I never started the um, dive into new episodes of The Simpsons. So that'll have to wait until the next podcast. So a show that I have seen headed to US screens pretty shortly and uh, hopefully UK to follow. I feel as though it may find a home in Sky. It's going to be on HBO in the States. It's called Scavenger's Rain. 
I've actually, over the, the past summer, been working on an HBO show as well, which I don't think there's sort of plans for it to come to the UK. They haven't shown it in the UK for a long time, for whatever reason. But generally speaking, I found that with HBO, when they do bring them over to England these days, it tends to wind up on Sky. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know if they've even started having conversations about this. Like I say, it hasn't actually begun in the States yet, but definitely worth a watch. It's sort of an expansion on a short film called Scavengers, which uh, I believe is still available on YouTube to watch in full. Uh, really interesting film uh, by Late Night Work Club alumni, notably um, Charles Hertner and uh, Joe Bennett. I think the best way to sort of describe it is kind of like a nature documentary almost, combined with like intergalactic, lost in space type peril. Certainly the short film is kind of like a study of biological processes that are, you know, by definition alien, not really anything you'd see on Earth, but they all have a kind of logic to them that's really clever and um, really, really lends itself well to animation. And what we're essentially seeing are people who are stranded, perhaps lost, or they're perhaps working on this kind of, you know, uh, alien terrain, alien planet, learning to live with the various sort of, you know, processes, learning to survive, I guess, essentially. This show kind of takes that basic premise, but gives it a, a proper story. And initially, I think the first episode or so, uh, it really sort of establishes, it more specifically kind of highlights a peril element. Like these are uh, characters who are, you know, they're lost, they're stranded, they have crashed, they are separated from one another. There aren't, uh, I think, that many survivors from the mission they were on. They are far from home, and uh, pretty much anything can come along and slap them up <laughs> or do something devastating to them, slice them into pieces. And the first episode, I was a little worried that maybe is this going to be the whole show because it, it essentially it sets up the peril element. And a lot of it is kind of getting to know these characters by seeing them fleeing from danger. And, hmm. oh, we found a safe space, you know, to uh, rest our weary heads for a minute. Oh, no, there's some more danger. Oh, we found some nourishment. Let's go, you know, slice this thing open and sustain ourselves. Oh, shit, that angered a big, angry thing. <laughs> and it's going to come and kill us. We've got to run away again. A lot of running away, a lot of, you know, uh, self-preservation stunning to look at like i i i'm really impressed with the animation yeah it feels like it kind of has one foot in a sort of anime feature film world in terms of the elaborate vistas and um the the fluidity of the sort of organic processes and stuff like that it feels like feature film animation to me absolutely yeah it, it's it's a real cut above 100 percent. now the way it was not pitched, but there was a log line or something in one of the initial kind of press notes that kind of likened it to another HBO show called The Last of Us, which I'm sure anyone listening is at least familiar with. It was a very, very popular event over the course of this year. I, I kind of understand why they would cite that show of all the other shows in the HBO, you know, roster. Uh, it wouldn't have been a show I would have thought of personally watching it like if you say oh what show does this remind you of i wouldn't have said the last of us i think what they're referring to essentially is the element of survival and the very organic nature of you know what the threat is in the last of us but really this is a whole other thing it's it's you know it's a sci-fi epic hmm. which is not my favorite genre 
note the correct use of that word. <laughs> uh, but I'm kind of I'm not like a sci-fi like snob, but I I like sci-fi if it's if it's just a good story or if it's funny or if there's some kind of thing about it. Like I'll I'll give pretty much any genre a chance, you know. Like I don't really like westerns, but I love Deadwood. I don't really like gangster movies, but I like The Sopranos. Like it's there's something else going on. It's usually to do with how the characters are constructed and how they're written the cleverness of the story. And this, I think, definitely falls into the category of something that, you know, it is definitely a part of the genre. It's unique within the genre, but it also kind of transcends it. Uh, I was I was really psyched about it, watching it. And I kind of, you know, going in with that, like, you know, oh, we've made an animated The Last of Us. I'm like, oh, okay. And then sort of, really, it was seeing the names attached to it, because we've had, you know, Charles on before. Sean Bacalou is attached to it as well. Uh, we'll be hearing from him too. Uh, we'll be talking to Green Street Pictures, who are basically the main sort of force behind the animation and really the, sh- the whole show. But, you know, thinking of Late Night Work Club, Ghost Stories, yeah, Drone, Love Streams, Sean's Films. Um, Strangers. This, these are a really, really talented group of people. It's really quite something. And, and so nice to see talented people get a show. Now, I've, kn- I've known some people who've gotten some shows. And uh, (laughs) the despair of like, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I don't want to be cruel, but I've definitely sort of been like, why that guy? Why did you give that guy a show? You know, and a lot of the times they're people I I don't know. They're like celebrities, like mediocre stand-up comics. And then they'll get like, you know, oh, we'll give you an animation series do what you can with that take your stand-up act and make it a hilarious animated show it'll be really novel and and witty and frightfully uh subversive blah 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 and it's just the same cookie cutter shit (laughs) that you see every other week going back to what i was saying before about something like lloyd of the flies it's so nice that a show not only turns out well but it's like it's really good like it's 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 like a relief anyway i don't know uh sean and charles and and this uh, much intimately but we we have, I think, a friendly, convivial uh, interview interviewee relationship the past few years. I was looking through the archive, Ben, and it's ten years since they first graced Squiggly. Good lord! With but as well, it was before them because obviously there was a lot of kind of we're communicating on Twitter as well, and 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 really, you know, the birth of this kind of the late night work club, like uh, Squiggly, was one of the the outlets that were kind of already knew a lot of these people and were. Really excited to see what they were gonna what they were gonna create, and then when Ghosts came out and Strangers and things like that, it was just it's where you started to find out about you know people the the, the people started um, the people you mentioned before Alex Gray, Kirsten Lepore, people like that who who really kind of took what was what was Twitter. Uh, you know, by storm, you know, on social media and things. Um, and you, you saw people get into their work and it was a, it's a beautiful thing. So nice to see them get this, this show. And as well, obviously, you understand why HBO is saying it's like the, the, the Last of Us because they already spent millions of pounds on The Last of Us and they want us to remind us that they spent millions of pounds on The Last <laughs> of Us. But hopefully it's to find the audience. But um, there's a lot to be said about how unusual a commission this is, mm. but how welcome that is. Yeah. And I hope it's not seen as a gamble. I hope it's just seen as a, 
yeah, this is this is good work, so we want to make a series of it. Because as soon as it starts being discussed as a gamble or as something out of the ordinary, then we're back to square one. Yeah. Because let's discuss this as it is. It's a beautiful piece of work and it fits long form perfectly. Uh, like you mentioned earlier on, this kind of bizarre nature documentary meets survivalist kind of it's a sci-fi show like you've not seen before um and it's nice to have the kind of the human elements and the bizarre fleshy organic weird blobby merges so beautifully with that the animation style that of, of the people that we mentioned um there is a moment which you know you you likened it to akira or, or to to like you know the, the uh, features. There is a moment that is on par with Akira, I would say, in terms of the sort of horrible, visceral mm. body horror elements that go on within this. Yeah, really exciting stuff. Yeah, no, I'm hoping that people kind of see the rally winner, you know, and I think that there's, like I say, once you kind of get into it, you know, these are characters that you, you become sort of invested in, very well performed you learn a little bit more about their relationship to one another as it goes. There are some really like surprising kind of revelations along the way, as far as, you know, what, you know, one character's backstory is and how it interlinks with another character's backstory that you, until a certain point, you hadn't even known that even was any kind of overlap there. I say this a lot, but it's also a show I could quite happily just sort of watch again and again, even without the sound, you know, it's just a, a show you could study. Uh, yeah, like I say, the original Scavenger short is available online, and there is a trailer for this also online. Yeah, both just very fun to look at. Interesting approach to the character design in this show. It's quite different from Scavengers, but it really captures the tone still. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of development in that respect, but that's something we talk about uh, in the interview. So yeah, uh, shall we uh, shall we hear from the talents of Green Street Pictures? Yeah, let's do this. Here is Charles Hertner and Sean Buckaloo and Benji Brook of Green Street Pictures, the uh, animation company behind Scavenger's Reign. In the past, uh, we have spoken to you, Charles and Sean. Uh, it would be great, actually, if we could all uh, introduce yourselves to kind of put a name to the voice and also tell us a bit about your respective backgrounds in animation and I guess how you've kind of come together uh, for Green Street. Yeah, I'm Benji. I'm supervising director on Scavenger's Reign and uh, partner at Green Street. And I actually learned how to animate in Photoshop from Charles from his Vimeo uh, tutorials in around 2010. So I've been a big fan of Charles and Sean in the indie animation world online for a long, long time. So joining Scavengers was a real dream come true. Hello, my name is Charles independent animator self-taught uh that tutorial that uh benji mentioned i have to give uh credit to caleb wood a friend of mine <clears throat> we worked on that together uh i'm always surprised to hear people keep bringing that up and still wanting that tutorial because it's very woefully out of date and i wouldn't recommend anybody learning how to animate in such a fashion especially with all the ways that photoshop has evolved now but um but yeah, so longtime independent animator um, hooked up with Joe Bennett to create uh, Scavenger's Reign short film, which then became a pilot, which then became a show. And on the show, I was 
mean, I did writing, I did art direction, I did compositing, um, background design stuff, just like a lot of various things. And I'm Sean Bucklew. Uh, I, Charles and I became friends on the internet uh, and started a podcast to talk about Avatar uh, back in the day. And then um, I met Joe when he, at a, at a late night work club screening, actually, all of us met in uh 2013 uh and yeah i started also just making independent animation and animation for the internet uh and then um when charles and scott and a couple of other people started late network club uh they invited me in and that's kind of how i got introduced a little bit more to this you know universe of internet uh online animation um and then when they were working on the scavenger short i sort of was just around because joe had moved to los angeles and we were just becoming buddies and uh uh i was so excited by it and so inspired by it and uh and then when it became a show i was i was very happy to hop on and i was a, a writer co-executive producer on the show and the show itself is really something uh scavengers rain i'm about halfway in and usually with screeners, like, you know, if, if I get more than one or two, I'll usually just watch one or two. Uh, but no, this one really kind of got me into it. And uh, I'll kind of circle back to that in a sec. Uh, given that it grew from an adult swim short, I was kind of interested in the production circumstances of that. Uh, if that was something you went to the network with, uh, were they soliciting short film ideas at the time? How, how that started out was Adult Swim at the time was looking for online content for some kind of online portal service thing that they were going to try to do. I didn't, it never materialized, but they were like actively collecting, um, you know, content for, for online. Everybody knew online was the future, but nobody knew quite what to do. And I feel like we were a little bit part of that. Um, and I think the short film was originally just supposed to be like a quick thing, you know, a quick, quick and dirty Adult Swim two minute kind of a thing. Um, but we got our ambitious, our ambitions got the best of us, me and Joe, and it ended up being like this seven minute thing. Um, and at the time, um, who was, um, La Lazo, right? Mike Lazo? Am I getting that right? Yeah. Um, he was the head of Adult Swim at the time. And from what I remember, he was kind of like looking just for something different. I feel like it was kind of in the winds that maybe he was going to be leaving because there was all this talk about, the um, networks getting acquired and buyouts and stuff like that. Um, so he was just in the in, in a good mind to sort of like take a chance on something different. And so when he saw the short film <clears throat> presented it to him, he said, "Oh, okay, this is great. Like, let's let's give it a shot. Let's let's make it a let's make it a pilot and see what happens." You know. Um, and so that got developed uh, in like 2018, I believe, um, amidst the. Uh, I forget who bought who. Was it AT and T that bought Time Warner? Yeah, or bought Turner. Turner. You know, you got bought, or the networks got bought, and you know when that happens, like spending kind of stops. You know, and and so we got kind of caught up in that. And it's like, where are we going to go? Because the show costs this much to make. Yada yada yada. But eventually, um, we uh, hooked up with um, Billy and Aaron, uh, who used to be at um, Max when Max was starting up, and they. Uh, were a part of Warner Brothers, Time Warner, you know, all that stuff, or Turner. I, sorry, I forget all the names. Um, and they just really loved it. They just really loved it. And they thought this would be great for Max. This would be great for HBO Max, what they call it at the time. Um, and so, yeah, and they they, uh, they greenlit us and gave us a shot. I mean, the interesting thing about all of this, it was, it was like seven years 
from the short of the conception of the short to the completion of the show, which I don't think is unorthodox. I mean, it's like just takes a long time to gestate this stuff, especially something as unorthodox as Scavenger's Rain. Kind of comparing the two, not in any rigorous way, but you know, for a frame of reference, um, there's so much of the kind of spirit of the short that's been retained. I think every scene has real meat to chew on, and that's really kind of gone through into the series. And other than like a sort of, I guess, a couple of like cosmetic differences, like I guess there's a slightly different approach to the character design, would you say is fair? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that, uh, Jonathan and Kondo, a great friend and an amazing animator designer, he was a part of the short, right? Sean and Charles, he animated. Yeah, a- he animated a little bit of the short or, or a lot of the short and did character design and some animations for the pilot episode and then went on to direct two episodes of the series as a whole. And he has a very specific and, and, and really dominant style in this like indie European animation world. It's sort of you kind of think about it as um, yeah, European anime. There's just, there's, it, and he, I think, has cornered the market on a very specific way of, of drawing these characters. And I feel like Scavengers is the first show that's hopefully presenting this style to the world. Um, it's not American anime. It's not, you know, Eastern anime. It's, a, it's its own thing. Um, and the characters are so beautiful. And the animators who worked with them, I think, push them in interesting directions. I think over the course of the season, we got more and more comfortable with how to push them. Um, and the, the backlog of Im- images that we put together, of the layouts, the all the pieces of animation, it was a huge team on our side to put together a layout, which is unorthodox in American animation right now. And I think that's what gives it its feeling like it's handmade. It's very like love- a loving piece of art in every frame. Um, and hopefully that comes across as you're watching. The, the layout is astonishing. And like I say, there's really, there's just so much to kind of like, you know, take in. And I think it would definitely, you know, lend itself to multiple viewings. And there were times actually where I'd go back and I would rewatch certain sequences, you know, that I just kind of watched. And that I think is something I was chatting with a, a colleague of mine the other day about, not sameness, but I think a lack of, of visual excitement in a lot of adult animation, or it's it's you know visually dynamic in a way that very much fits a kind of mold. Uh, a lot of stuff you see on Netflix, for example, feels quite samey, and this just feels so unique. It feels very kind of distinct, I think, to the artists behind it. Sean, given like, your role on this project, but also being familiar with your work as well as a filmmaker. There were elements of it that also felt quite reminiscent of you as an artist. Was there any kind of input in that respect from you? Uh, I mean, I felt like like I, I like I was writing on it, and that was kind of my my main official capacity. So certainly uh, for the episodes that I wrote, I was able to like put my put my imprint on it, and and I it was a, a writer's room writing it, so I felt like it was a lot of collaboration in in even in scripts that are penned by a particular person. Everybody kind of has their DNA in it, but um, but then I felt like I got to be there for a lot of the process and and kind of tried to tried to get involved and and suggest things and 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 put my creative input in. I don't know as much as possible. So I, I, I would say Sean's DNA is all over it. I mean, here 
I think what what you do in your short films where you you the camera functions like a live action camera, that's what we talked about. It was a, the kind of the, the marching orders from Joe and Charles was we just want it to feel like we're using lenses that are used in live action film and the acting should feel like live action. The camera shouldn't move around very much. The staging should feel like live action staging. And Sean does that in all the short films, which I think makes like it crackles with specificity and it, it makes you feel like you're watching an elevated, you know, feature film quality. Um, and it's something that I think it, it taps into the subconscious on a viewer. It's so subtle. It's just like how much space the character takes up in frame. And if you dial it in and you look at a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and you try to emulate what he's doing and not trying to emulate what other animated shows are doing, it just creates something that feels really unique in the ecosystem. Yeah. And, and I, it, but it's also, I would say like, it's like the, the, the benefit from my perspective is I feel like it was like, there's so many good people working on the show that I felt like on the writing side, there was just a lot of confidence that like, like you would, you'd write something that is, is very, you know, complex and you're like, oh, I know this is going to be tough to execute. But I think there was just a certainty that like a lot of subtlety was going to get baked in. So I think that inspired a sense of like you can be as subtle as possible and try to be as live action as possible in the writing just because you it, 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 but and certainly at some point it just became very obvious there was like oh the execution of everything is just at such a high level that that um i don't know you can write to your most specific self or something as opposed to yeah i, I don't know another show that has maybe a slightly different visual language where you're like oh no i have to write this more broad or i have to you know i have to uh whatever also it's funny because i feel like in the scripts there's a it's sort of like a like a word jungle because you're trying to describe these these processes of like the planet and it's like i'd say there's a decent amount of that is in the script obviously like the artists would like plus it and take it their own direction in like really amazing ways but you would have like it's two pages of just description of something that goes by kind of in a flash when you see it on screen but it is you know happening a little bit in the writing stage and that was fun and i think like for us, like took a kind of visual imagination that that I was happy to like be an animator approaching that just because I was like, I think if you were, I think if you were, for example, actually strictly a live action writer, you would find this show challenging because you're having to like, okay, it's like a frog mixed with a pile of spit mixed with, you know, <laughs> and there's goo and blah, 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 you know, that just would be, I don't know, maybe hard to wrap your head around or or imagine visually as you're writing. And but that and the delicate acting, it's that we tried to retain as much in-house as possible. I think oftentimes, and we talked about this a lot, anime, it's the giant set pieces that are kept in-house, the big action set pieces. And there's a lot distributed over every episode in Scavengers where we want this like delicate, weird animal stuff you know, being done very specifically throughout the episode and the acting, trying to get that feeling like it's elevated throughout the episode. So spreading that among our artists and making sure the entire episode gets that treatment. Um, and that way we can also say like a piece of dialogue or a, a scene is a lot of subtext, a lot of subtlety. We get to direct the artist who's working on it and they're really like a lot of back and forth and there are things that can be done um, with a lot of, I don't know, we talked a lot about this scene from There Will Be Blood, where Daniel Planview realizes that his brother's not his brother, and his 
his face shifts in a like a, a imperceptibly really well. subtle way of of yeah. hope and excitement turning to anger <laughs> and it was in the like yeah. scavenger storyboard guide perhaps like not the best example because i don't even know what we're asking people to do but no, it was sort of like <laughs> this is the kind of acting it's not it's so it's just your lip the corner of your lip tells you what's going on instead of just i think we were trying to push against just the like an expectation of broad cartoony acting where I feel like it's like people pantomiming these big emotions and trying to be like, can we dial into something that's like this other style of acting? Yeah. Of course, uh, uh, being longer form, you know, the characters start off essentially being in peril. And although the peril is very inventive and it's very fun to watch, the thing that keeps you watching is, you know, beyond a couple of episodes is, you know, the point where you're interested in their stories and, you know, why they are, who they are, and who they are to each other. So, and there's some really satisfying payoffs there, I think, around sort of episode five, um, which is where I'm at, and I'm really looking forward to watching more. So, as far okay, as the kind of... I was going to ask you what episode you're on. Yeah, just, I'm pretty sure it's the end of episode five, I just got to. Uh, so, yeah, was this, like, ensemble, I guess, essentially conceived by the three of you? Um, was that a kind of challenging process, given you know, that situation, that context, that group dynamic. These guys, I wasn't in the writer's room, so these guys could speak to that. And when I arrived on the pilot, Charles, you guys had already had already assembled the ensemble. But but I guess I'm I I guess I'm curious. I'm curious where I felt like there was a day in the writer's room where we really spent the whole day like workshopping this kind of question of like backstories and just really because I felt like for the first couple of episodes, it was like possible to kind of construct the, pl the plot without sort of, it was when it became 12 episodes that it, it was these questions about kind of like, like paying off bigger character arcs and, and trying to like dial that in. And I remember it was just a very fun day where I felt like it was a lot of people talking about the kind of emotional backstories of these characters. And it was also, I felt like where a lot of the writers like talked about their personal life and shared experiences and like imbuing characters with, like, oh, there's this relationship between a sort of husband and wife, and let's talk about what informs that and and our experiences with like the nature of arguments or the nature of kind of like like a relationship falling apart, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> if I have this right, you're you're asking about how we um, constructed it or how we landed on constructing it with like three main storylines kind of all being separate from each other for a while. Yeah, essentially, and uh, I guess the sort of characters within those storylines. Right. So the funny answer is that it's kind of like a cheap narrative trick, right? It's like a way to make something like to boost the interest of the viewer. If you're like going from like one sectioned off thing to another sectioned off thing, um, because if they were all, if, if all the characters were all together the entire time, um, it's a little bit more of a challenge to keep things interesting throughout an episode. And it's a lot more challenging logistically because then you can't necessarily have some characters going through something kind of intense without that rippling into these other characters. So when it is sectioned off and separate, you can explore these wildly different um, um, things. You know, it's like that's kind of when you watch when people watch the show, every section kind of feels unique from the other one per episode, you, you know, even like within itself. Um, and that was just like a thing that we wanted to do just for the sake of like being able to explore things that are wildly different from each other and hopefully keep that interesting and keep a sort of energy and momentum going without sort of lingering too much in like pointless downtime, you know? That's, um, yeah, like I say, I'm, I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing where that kind of journeys lead them. And 
Is this, having not seen the whole thing, is this kind of a contained story this season or is it going to scope for more beyond episode 12? There's seasons and seasons and seasons of this. Go on forever. <laughs> we have 20 seasons planned. 20 seasons already written in many ways. No, I, I, I would say, I mean, Charles, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like we talked about this a lot when we were writing it. Like, if this is if if this is all we get to make, that that we wanted to commit to a lot of things and have it feel like a, a complete a complete story in that way. But I mean, you'll see it like that. Like, there's so many possibilities for 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 how this can continue, and we. We've talked a lot about where it goes from here, and I feel like it's like we're super excited. But I, but I think there was just a feeling of kind of like, but let's lay all our chips on the table in this first season, just because like I don't like it when there's like mystery box shows that just like keep keep like I, I learned this 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 phrase from one of the other writers working on the show called schmuck bait of like fake out things that don't actually pay off, but are like cliffhangers to the next episode that like. Ooh, we got to, oh, there's a dead body. Is it a character we care about? No, it's just some random guy. <laughs> Whoops, just kidding. I was thinking, because you were asking about the interweaving characters and revealing backstories. A lot of times I was thinking about Lost. Lost does a great job of just throwing these characters onto an island, and then you gradually reveal the layers of the onion, and and there's mysteries to solve, but it does the shrink. That everyone hates the show at the very end. There's like, no there, there or something. And I felt like for us, it was like, yeah, no, we want to commit to to yeah. stuff gets resolved season by the end one, of the season. We definitely stuff pays it. off. Yeah. So um, uh, you're working, I guess, alongside or with Titmouse. And uh, I'm sort of interested in that sort of dynamic then, or your working relationship with them. Are there particular, like, I guess, areas that you guys cover and then others that they uh cover or is it more kind of interwoven i was and and i joined green street after scavengers as a partner so i was a titmouse employee and so the production was at titmouse the writing was at green street and a lot of the pre the pre pre-production was at green street putting the team together putting you know all pieces together the brain trust was at green street and then the production production services at titmouse um great relationship with titmouse they're fantastic and um we work closely with them all the time i've worked with titmouse for years and um a lot of it was like learning from titmouse about how to structure a show like this and such a complex piece of machinery trying to figure out how to do something really elevated within like the confines of a you know american tv show budget that wasn't we're you know it's a first season so we're not getting like big huge resources from hbo so it was working with them to figure out how we can do something that feels really unique and special with the you know limited resources we had and i felt like they really you know pulled us through in a beautiful way it's tough it's like always really really hard especially when you're trying to do something new uh working within a system that has guardrails um, but it is an interesting challenge and I, and we learned so much from it and at Green Street, a lot of it is just sort of taking what we learned and creating our own pipeline and our own systems that I think pull a lot from it and then also our like independent animation background changing a lot of the I think it's also worth methods. mentioning that we made the show in the heat of the pandemic. You know, like there was moments when people could 
be in a room together. And then the next day was the directive came in of like, okay, now you have to separate and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, to answer your question, I almost don't even know how to compare because literally everything was just at home, you know, the entire time. Yeah. And, for and, most people. and I'd say just spiritually, it felt to me like, like we learned so much as we went. And so it was like finding a balance of, you don't know what you don't know and you're learning, but then also I think holding on to some, some of the integrity of how I think we enjoy working before and just how we wanted to see it come together. And so being really obstinate about certain creative decisions and, you know, and, and that's when it's sort of pushing back on how this system seems to sort of typically operate. And so I think it was for us, like, that was like the big learning experience that the tip house really helped us with is like learning when to push and learning when to go like, okay, you know, like, we accept that we're on a, 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 a runaway train and we're laying down track in front of it. And, you know, there's things you can do that'll, that'll make it good. And there's things that you, you can do that'll derail. I think a lot of that shorting so, whenever we're making a show, it's like, it's dead and alive at the same time. And it, you never really know until it's done and it could go either way at any moment. And um, it's just trusting the people you're working with. And, and I don't know. It, 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 there's so many places where things can go off the rails, especially if you're trying to do something that no one's done before or no one's done recently. So it's really helpful to have uh, a guiding hand, I think, that has had years and years of experience doing this. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking to me today. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the very best with it. Because um, like I said, it's very refreshing. Uh, it's exciting. It's it's you know got all the things about animation I love in it, and I, I yeah I think there's going to be an appetite for it. No, thank you, well, and I hope you enjoy you, the rest of the. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the season. Yeah, and thank Absolutely. you for taking the time to to chat with us too. Yeah, uh, always a pleasure. So thank you to the team at Green Street Pictures for talking to us about Scavengers Reign, which is heading to HBO Max or I think just Max as it's known now. Uh, it'll premiere the show's first few episodes on October the 19th uh, at midnight, and then it'll be carrying on throughout November. So yeah, if you're in the States, check it out. Really, really good stuff all around. It's, it's a show that I think a lot of people are going to be like absolutely fucking slapping up. Like it's, it's, it's yeah, good medicine. Get it on your eyeballs. And hopefully, like I said before, hopefully before long, it'll actually uh, make it to UK screens. So uh, we'll see. But uh, in the meantime, uh, you lucky Yanks, get first dibs on it. Hmm. Right. Oh well. Anything else going on before we uh, before we clock off, having done our duty to the animation world? I think what will happen is what always happens is as soon as we press stop on record, something that everyone will talk about for weeks will break in terms of the animation news. Yep. <laughs> and then we'll put the podcast out halfway through that that particular news cycle. <laughs> it's all so rude of them. Absolutely, just, just break it now. We're we're, we're we're waiting. We're looking at what's trending on Twitter. Come on, or X. <sighs> X. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I cannot think of anything else. I believe we have spent our particular animation. Uh, I've run out of words. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's it for us then. Until we can find more words, <laughs> of course. You know, make sure to keep checking out squiggly.com. Because it's got all the uh, animation goodness that we'd like to put out into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some pretty good editorials go up recently. Uh, I enjoyed Larry Freed's little look at the changing relationships between the public and Disney Pixar films over the years. It was a really good read. It really sort of reflected 
I think, a sort of, not frustration, but observation, I guess, in uh, the critical response to new Pixar films, including sometimes my own. But there is this thing of like, well, we we don't have the same relationship with media that we did as kids. And, you know, there's only so much nostalgia will go. This was an interesting kind of look at the fact that a lot of new Pixar films are, in a lot of respects, you know, objectively quite good. But there's always going to be that, you know, gammony contingent. They're like, oh, it's not Toy Story. It's shit. Everything was good when I was young. (laughs) No, it wasn't. You were just young. You just miss being young. You miss having that joie de vivre and not having to pay fucking council tax. That's what was good about it. You were young, and you know what else you were? Stupid. Absolute fucking moron. The show Dairy Girls really highlighted it for me. Which has, you know, set, set in the 90s and it has the most masterfully curated soundtrack of 90s, like, pop chart dreck. That when you see it in the context of the episode is great. And it's quite nostalgic and it reminds you of that time in your life. You know, if you're old like me, it reminds you of school discos and, you know, uh, awkward fumblings and just, you know, navigating being, you know, a spotty teen and having to listen to awful shit on the radio. The music was terrible. Like, if it came on the radio, you couldn't kick your fucking car radio off the dashboard quick enough. Like, terrible, terrible, terrible time for music. Our our era that we grew up in was absolutely awful. (laughs) Uh, But people will say, no, music was only good in the 90s. It got shit in, like, 2010. Or, like, these kids, the 2020, uh, you know, kids, Billie Eilish, on principle, because it's new and it's scary and it's different. No, it's it's as it's as good and as bad. I think it does. It's exactly the same for movies and TV shows. Like we say that you know, oh, we're we're drowning in a sea of mediocre reboots and requels and sequels. Like we didn't have those in the fucking eighties and nineties. Remember the nineteen nineties <laughs> Tom and Jerry movie? Come on, absolutely. They didn't make a Flintstones movie until nineteen ninety five. For fuck's sake! So wait till I was eleven. This Wednesday show is 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 crap. Bring back the original Adams Family from nineteen ninety three. That's not <laughs> that's not where that came from. <laughs> Go back a few more fucking decades. Anyway, I enjoyed that, and also another recent piece by Mel Sionko, which was gonna be an interview with a specific writer for the Owl House. And it kind of grew and grew and grew, and it ended up being a kind of overview of trans writers' experiences, or trans uh, creatives, including writers and directors, their experiences in getting shows off the ground and in writing rooms about like trying to further implement or further incorporate trans stories in animation narratives. And the resistance that they're up against even now, you know, even in 2023, there's a kind of wariness about the issue. And, uh, yeah, that piece went up, I think, just before a certain uh, piece of shit prime minister started spouting off at the fucking mouth and reminding the world that, oh, no, we've, we've not only are we not making the progress that we think we might have been making, we're actually very, very, very far behind. We, we put, I, put up a, I put up a tweet, uh, basically said, because the Prime Minister said his his thing, and so I put a thing up on, on Twitter saying, basically, trans people have been around for long before we were born, and they'll be around long after we're dead. So, you know, basically, trans lives, uh, you know... Uh, Trans Lives Matter or whatever the hashtag was. It was, it was, it was, um, um, yeah, trans rights are human rights. Absolutely. Uh, and you just get 
you just get some utter shit that just sort of slither out of the woodwork and just like kind of, they just like probably click on the hashtag and go, I want to argue with him because I'm, I, yeah. I don't understand and I'm scared and I'm stupid and I'm just ignorant and I just want to, I just want to dribble my ignorance all over the internet like a big dribbly moron. And it's just, but you've, you've got to keep these things front and center. And it's fantastic. It's a fantastic read that Mel's put together, uh, in, in highlighting, um, you know, that the, these people are, are working in our industry and they should be celebrated and championed and, and, and allowed to have these conversations using animation. And we're so lucky to have, you know, creatives like this. The way in which, like you say, people are emboldened to lash out against it as a concept. It's alarming. Yeah, there's some dark times ahead, I fear. Remember we're in the early days of the podcast when we, we mentioned religion and got told off. And now politics is just everything and you have to you have to get stuck in. It's the way the world is, but in such an unconstructive way. Like it's astonishing like, how politics has become so much a part of the vocabulary of, of the world. Mm. Uh, and you realize why people didn't talk about politics before is that it was above their station. They couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. Now they still can't comprehend it, but they won't shut the fuck up about it. You know, and it's, yeah, damage <laughs> is being done. I do think animation, and this, you know, the article does go into this, animation is one of the, the sensibly at least more inclusive industries. And I think that, you know, if strides are going to be made, that is an area that hopefully we will start to see, you know, some change uh, happen before. And, and, you know, it happens in other places. So, you know, that's a, a reason to kind of be in animation's corner. Film festivals of the world. <laughs> also on Squiggly, we have a nice write-up of some of the highlights of the cartoon forum uh, that Nathan Wilkes uh, put together for us. And I believe Aaron may be doing some write-ups of Animacht. Yeah, some stuff to look forward to. And of course, you know, there's all the other usual news and reviews and interviews and whatnot that we love to shove down your waiting throats. So yeah, squiggly.com. It's our website. It's really good. Get stuck in. And elsewhere, I mean, Squiggly are still on X at Squiggly. Uh, if you want to follow us on X, go there. Or on Instagram at Squiggly Animation and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. Are you plugging anything? Well, right this moment, of course, my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, second edition, is still available to buy, if you're so inclined. It's a big, chunky collection of insights into the filmmaking processes of a bunch of indie animation legends, such as the aforementioned Late Night Work Club talents, and folks like Don Hertzfeld, Bill Plimpton, Signa Bauman, Robert Morgan, Pez, David O'Reilly, Kirsten Lepore, Rosto, Chris Shepard, Joseph Wallace, and a whole bunch more. If you want to pick that up, bang it on your shelves. You can order it basically anywhere that sells books or directly from routledge.com for free shipping. And right now, Routledge also has a sale on, so you get a whopping 20% off. If you buy two books or more from Routledge, you get 25% off. My God, man. Now, there's a ray of light in this bleak old world. Sales on until the end of October, so act fast. And looking forward to November... 
Manchester Animation Festival. As mentioned before, there are a couple of squiggly events on the Wednesday evening, November 15th, kicking off with the squiggly screening at 7pm, featuring some fantastic animated shorts that won't be screened elsewhere in the festival. And then immediately after, at 8.30pm, is the squiggly quiz, which is sure to be a grand old time, as always, and they'll be taking place in the home event space. Go to manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk for more info, including how to get tickets and passes. Yeah, go and look on manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Tickets are on sale, passes are on sale. Uh, over 100 events. Uh, your pass also gets you access to online stuff as well after the festival. So, yeah, bargain, bargain, bargain. Uh, yeah, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk and I'll see you in November where my words will have returned. Oh, until then, I've been Ben Mitchell at Ben L. Mitchell on Instagram and uh, ben-mitchell.co.uk uh, I'm uh, Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson on uh, X and I'm Dr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson on Instagram uh, because my Instagram is higher qualified than my Twitters. Fantastic. Well, that's us, and uh, yeah, we'll be back, I'm sure, before the end of the year. Till then, everyone, you've been very well behaved. It's been lovely talking to you. Goodbye, and happy animating. Bye-bye.